0: Let's talk books. I'm Robin Van Auken, a writer and a teacher. My guest and I want to help you write your own book. We're sharing ideas about inspiration, book publication, and promotion. You can find the episode show notes, a free novel, guides, and tutorials at RobinVanAuken.com. Enjoy the show. It's episode number six, and my guest is Joseph Smith, who, like me, is a writer and a teacher. Joe is the author of three nonfiction books. His first book, The Psychophile, is a comprehensive guide to Alfred Hitchcock's classic shock film. His second book, Sex and Violence in the Bible, surveys explicit content in the holy book. It's a squeamish topic a lot of Christians shy away from. In the book, Joe champions a frank and forthright approach. He's shopping his new book, transparency, a cure for hypocrisy in the modern church, to a new publisher, he's finding that process to be a bit daunting. We talk about the changes in the publishing industry and how difficult it is to place books with publishers today. We also discuss living in a small town and the importance of the hometown newspaper, especially its role in nurturing new writers. We chat about the writing legacy passed down from father to son and how his own son has inherited the writing gene. You can learn more about Joe and his books in the show notes at RobinVanAuken.com. Let's get started. Hi there. I'm here with Joseph W. Smith Third. Joe, welcome. I'm so happy to have you on the show today. Let's talk a little bit about what you've been working on.
1: Thanks, Robin. It's great to be here, too. Um... I'm working on a whole bunch of things. I suppose my principal project right now is trying to sell my third book, which is called Transparency, A Cure for Hypocrisy in the Modern Church.
0: Which is an extremely interesting title. How did you come up with that title?
1: Well, I knew I wanted to write on transparency. Initially, I had called the book Open Hearts, which is taken from a Bible verse. And I was having trouble selling it under that title. And my wife suggested, why don't you just go back to transparency? And she said, if you put the word hypocrisy in the title, you're liable to get more readers' attention. And I thought, well, you know, a good good writer listens to his wife. So um, that's its current title. Let me give you a little background on that, Robin. Um, About maybe five years ago, I decided I wanted to teach an adult Sunday school class on transparency. That is on being open with one another about who we really are, especially sins and struggles. Um, I think it's something that's difficult for church people. We we tend to go into church, hit the church button, we're on, and then when you go out of church, you, sh- you shut the church button back off, and so you didn't take your real self into church, and so I don't know what good church is going to do you if that's the case. And then everybody in church thinks, well, well, everybody else must be doing really well, and I must be the only one in church who's so messed up because everyone is so on right now, and no one's letting down their masks. And I can't believe that's the vision of what God wants for us in terms of relating to other people. So there's a short uh, prece of the book. Anyway, um, the problem I had at the time was I could not find a book on the subject to use as my text for adult Sunday school class. Um, I found a lot of books that had that addressed it in a chapter or a paragraph, but nothing on transparency. So I had to ransack book after book after book. And um, by the time I had done that, I had 40 pages of notes. And I said, maybe it's time for me to write my own book since no one else has done it. Uh, in the interim, um, there are two other books that have come out that are, they address it. They're not the same as my book, but uh, they do address it. However, mine remains the only book of its kind that I'm aware of, and I'm a little puzzled as to why I'm, I'm having trouble selling it. It's on its fifth publisher now. and If we can't get this fifth one to take a nibble, I think my wife and I are going to self-publish.
0: It is very difficult to find a publisher in today's market. The industry has changed, and now there's, you know, the you've heard of the, the top five publishers, the big five, and they own all of the other imprints so if one turns you down what are you going to do you turn to the other and if how many times have you gone knocking on doors with this book
1: um it's kind of complicated um i really it's four publishers um the fourth one thought it was a good book and i'm looking at specifically christian publishers but there's a lot of those because christians still read a lot more than most of the rest of the culture i think um And the fourth publisher said, we really like this book, but we don't think we can market it. We're too small. And so they called back the third publisher who had turned me down and said, we think you should take another look at this book. So they're looking at it now, and they've had it about two months, and that's a long time. So I'm not really sure that I'm going to get um, a positive answer from them. But it's interesting, Robin, you mentioned how the industry has changed. You know, my first two books, I published one in 2009 on Hitchcock's movie Psycho. There it is. And uh, then I published one in 2014 called Sex and Violence in the Bible. And I had no trouble whatsoever getting those books published, although I had really no credentials. I mean, I've I've written for the local paper paper here, but that's not a paper anyone outside of Central PA has ever heard of. And I had no problem. Um, Both books were accepted by the first publisher that I sent them to. And it seems to me that in the interim, you know, in the, let's say, eight years since I first entered the publishing industry, Things have really changed. Um, They just don't, they're afraid. It seems almost fearful. Like, we don't think we can risk our money on this book because we don't think we can sell it. And it's just a different vibe that I'm getting. It seems like I entered, sometimes I think I entered the publishing field about 20 years too late. But as you have pointed out a couple couple of times to me, self-publishing has really taken off. And that also has changed the landscape a lot. I don't know if you want to comment on that. I mean, you know a lot more about it than I do.
0: I have been studying the self-publishing industry for quite a few years. I, too, traditionally published um, quite a few local history books. And then I worked with the local newspaper to publish a series where I did all of the work. It was a local history series for the Bicentennial and I did all of the work. Um, all they did was actually pay for the printing. So that experience taught me that self-publishing a book was not that difficult. So after that, I, I leaped into self-publishing with novels. I haven't tried to self-publish a nonfiction book yet, but I am considering it. I've got a few ideas going in my head. That being said, um, we do have one book, my husband and I, uh, we co-wrote a book called Play Ball, The Story of Little League Baseball. And it was, yes, it was with the university, um, Penn State University Press. And it was an amazing experience working with a wonderful publisher, you know, because you've got this outstanding editor and the copy editors were phenomenal, you know, so the quality was just amazing. I loved working
1: with pictures and layout for you. I would imagine they did. They
0: did. But, um, around 2000, and I guess, um, maybe 12 or 14, I, the book went out of print, all of the copies were sold, so I purchased the, the remainders. I purchased all of the remaining copies, and I brought the book home, and I decided I was going to self-publish it. I put it out as a um, Kindle version, just an independent digital book, and didn't put too much effort into letting it, you know, marketing it. However, um, because there were no more hard paperback copies left, I started to get calls and queries from different booksellers, notably Autos downtown in Williamsport, where you and I both, we we frequent that shop, and um, also the Little League Baseball um, store. They said, hey, you let this book go out of print. We need some copies. So I I have um, approached a publisher a children's publisher in maryland um, near baltimore and i've been talking with that owner about republishing play ball and i've been spending the last week looking at the old files converting them into new software and um, updating the last chapter and the appendix and um, we're getting ready to traditionally publish again a book
1: that's great yeah you would have a a good market for that during a few weeks in August when the autos and the other in the downtown area is generally quite crowded with people willing to spend some money.
0: You would think, you would think it would be a, you would think it would be an excellent book to push at that time. But the biggest problem is um, it is, it is the definitive history of that youth sport, and we allowed it to go out of print, so people just didn't have access to it. So it was more like um an author's obligation, a responsibility to put that book back out in the market. Yeah. Now, if I can make some money on it, heck yeah, I'm all about that. But let's talk a little bit about where you started with your writing process. I met you 20 years ago, and I just stumbled across a blog post that you wrote where you were talking about 1997 when we first met, and you had a film review
1: by Mr. Bean, about the Mr. Bean movie. That's right. I remember that auspicious day so well, Robin. I'll go back a ways, and and if I'm becoming too discursive and rambling, you let me know. No worries. Um, My father was a film critic uh, for a a large newspaper in Buffalo, and um, so he probably had, you know, And he also was a feature writer, so he probably had 10 articles a week in or maybe more. He did a lot of editing work, too. So the newspaper business always had a lot of romance for me. I mean, it was always something that I really wanted to do. But when I graduated from Syracuse in 82, at that very time when I graduated, my father's paper folded, dumping about a 1,000 very qualified people into the northeastern journalism job market and they couldn't find work either my father couldn't find work and this was after 30 years in newspaper so i thought well i did try i looked at a few newspapers in the northeast uh, probably about 30 or 40 of them but i no one was hiring so um i eventually wound up doing a bunch of other things i worked for publishing i worked for simon and schuster for a while in new york city and then i thought um i'd rather be working with people than sitting in an office proofreading so i came out um when my wife and I came out to Central PA, I got certified, and I've been teaching uh, high school English for about 30 years now, since 1988. Um, and uh, But I always wanted to do a little journalism, and um, about 25 years ago, I won a writing contest at the Brown Library, uh, which kind of reminded me, hey, you, you know you, you did have this writing talent that you wanted to use at one point in time, and it was only a year or two later that um, I just called the Sun Gazette thinking, well, I got nothing to lose. And it was you that I got on the phone. And uh, I explained that I had a degree in newspaper journalism. And would you like a review of the Bean movie? And you said, uh, well, yeah, but our deadline is two o'clock, which was about 45 minutes from that time. So I thought, well, if I want to be a journalist, I ought to be able to write something in 45 minutes. And um, I got it to you and you read it and said, what next? Which was music to my ears. Because I, I, I really wanted to write for the paper, and the nice thing about the Sun Gazette is people actually read it. I mean, it's it's got a a small circulation compared to something like New Orleans or Miami, but people read it, and uh, so I've been writing for them, and um, I actually have lost count of how many editors I've had down there, Robin. I think yes. it's been about a, I think it's it's been one every two years. It's been about eleven or twelve now. Um, But I've I've been doing it for about 20 years, and I've written about 1,000 articles for them, and that's really been a blast. Um, And uh, I also, in my teaching career, um, I also do a lot of Hitchcock, just um, because my students, for the most part, don't even know who Alfred Hitchcock is anymore. And uh, after a while, when the 50th anniversary of the movie Psycho came up, in uh in a, around the year 2000 i thought you know i've got enough material i've seen the movie a hundred times i've read every word that's been written on it so i'm going to put together a book on it and if nobody wants to publish it i'll publish it myself and uh sure enough mcfarland in north carolina which um they specialize in i think 75 percent first-time authors they snapped it right up and did a wonderful job on it and i was thrilled and uh I decided to write another one on sex and violence in the Bible. I can't remember the exact process by which I moved toward that, but I was interested in sort of uh, looking at what is the level of graphic material in Scripture since a lot of folks, a lot of Christians and church sort of wonder, well, you know, where do I draw the line in terms of what I can read and watch? So I thought we could look at what the Bible does and where it draws the line. Uh, and that book also got snapped right up by... Um, Uh, P&R in Phillipsburg, New Jersey. Um, So then I sort of thought thought to myself, well, you know, two books is a fluke. If I can do three, I could retire from teaching and consider myself to have a writing career. But I'm having trouble getting over that hump with the third book. Um, I do have at least three others that I'd like to write after this one, but um, I'm not going to talk much about those. Um, I, there's a lot of other stuff I'd like to do in the meantime, um, the one publisher who was looking so carefully at my latest book, uh, they asked me to work on my marketing strategy, uh, my network platform, right, which I didn't have cause I really have been a member of the 20th century my whole life long. So I did develop a website. That's what you found a little bit ago. You found my yes. movie blog it's attached to that. I actually and, had been um, on it
0: before I was yeah. watching as you created it.
1: Yeah. And uh, it was very awkward for me because I'm uh, not very technologically savvy. But fortunately, things have gotten very easy online now. And with some help from friends, I put that together. So that's a venue. And I I try to keep it updated, although, Robin, I'm still teaching, and that occupies probably 85% of my time. So I don't have the attention, the time to give my website the attention it needs. And I have a Twitter and Instagram account, but again, I don't have time to give those the attention. Apparently, I don't have as much free time as the President of the United States. um, So I just don't go on Twitter very often. Um, But um, in the meantime, also, um, that one publisher that was looking carefully at my book um, put me in touch with a pretty respectable magazine called Modern Reformation, and they asked me for a piece, and that was my first piece in a national news magazine. So that was pretty much a dream come true. That came out a little about maybe two or three months ago, and then and they liked it, and so they they sort of uh, did the same thing you did. They said, "What else have you got?" So I, just at this very moment when you phoned me, I was um, I was working on another piece for them. And, uh, what
0: is the name of that article that you wrote for them?
1: Um, it was a, it was a. A Christian analysis of the movie Hail Caesar, okay. which a lot of people didn't see. It's a Coen Brothers film.
0: I saw the movie, I, and that, I saw yeah. your article. I was actually on that website.
1: Oh, okay, great, good. And uh, that, was, that was really fun. Uh, and then there's a website called Beautiful Christian Living, and I have a friend who writes for that, and she also put me in touch with that. So if and when I finally retire from teaching, I'll have plenty, plenty of things to do with my time. So I think I'm going to teach about another year or maybe two and try to become a full-time writer after that. So there's a very long answer to your question.
0: So it does take you a little bit of time as a teacher, uh, quite a bit of time. I remember um, interviewing you when the psychophile came out, just a really quick short interview at Otto's Otto's bookstore. Yeah. Yeah. And you told me that um, you worked on it over two summers and you just needed more time that you took an entire year off of unpaid, basically, sabbatical from teaching so that you could work on that book.
1: Yeah, actually, it was one semester. Robert. OK, so it was um, it was half a year or five months and it was unpaid. Uh, and I actually had to do that for each of my books. I find that and I'm sure lots of writers would tell you this, that um, you, you just need a completely clear or at least I do. I need a completely clear space. I need a clear physical space. I can't have a lot of a 1,000 responsibilities in my, which is what happens when you're teaching. You're just constantly on all the time. So I just had, for all three of my books, I just had to shut it off for one semester. I took three half years or three semesters off. Uh, and my wife works, and she so she graciously agreed to be the sole breadwinner in our home while, while I did that.
0: It is so important to have support. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And actually, in in all three cases, it didn't take me long to write the book. In all three cases, I was finished with it in about two and a half months of my five month leave. And then I spent the rest of the time editing it and trying to get trying to get it sold. I think, I don't know, maybe you and I can talk about this a little bit, but I, I never had writer's block with any of those projects. But I think that's because they were nonfiction. Have you found... That fiction is different in terms of trying to generate the material?
0: Definitely. Thin
1: air. Um
0: I worked on my novels. I have five novels out. I first pinned them under a you know, pseudonym. Um, I didn't want people to know it was me writing them because they were basically fun, creative experiments. And I was writing about the small town of, um, Eaton, E-A-T-O-N, Pennsylvania, which doesn't exist. It's kind of like a mashup of names, but it, in reality, it's Williamsport. And some of the characters that walk through the book are people here in Williamsport. And I was just kind of keeping that on the down low for a few years. And, um, it was, It wasn't difficult to write the first five, but the sixth novel, I've I've hit a wall. I've been avoiding writing and finishing this book for about two years. And we're not talking about masterpieces. We're talking about short romance novels, 50,000 words, something that I could technically kick out in a week if I wanted to. (laughs) But I just don't want to write them anymore. So, yeah, fiction Fiction is problematic when you lose interest and ambition in a project. Um,
1: I can imagine.
0: I'm very interested in developing a new project um, I've been working on um, with my friend Nancy Baumgartner. Are, are you familiar with Nancy?
1: I think I think that I do know her. Where does she work, Robin?
0: Well, Nancy um, actually is retired. She's... Um, A writer. She's a writer uh, out of Cogan Hill Township, Cogan Station Township, something like that, Cogan Township. Um, And she's written a couple of history books about that, but she also wrote um, quite a few articles for the Williamsport Sun-Gazette, and she's been working on children's. That's where I know the name from. Yes. She's a a wonderful person, and um, basically what's going on with this project is I inherited notes and information um, from a woman who passed away a couple of years ago, Rosemary Nydig. Rosemary was um, interested in writing a history of South Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and um, started collecting photos and interviews, little vignettes. And her interest, um, you know, was more in South Williamsport because she was raised there. I'm, what they call influx. I'm not from here. So my perspective on local history has always been very clinical, and I'm fascinated with um, the history, but I don't have that same touch that Rosemary had because, like I said, she grew up with these people. She had these memories. She was looking at it almost like a memoir, Um, and because it was uh, so disjointed, it's not able to be put into a book. So I came up with a suggestion that we create basically um, an interactive wiki website for South Williamsport and we put Rosemary's information up there because the web is a wonderful place to host um, small vignettes, small stories, uh, photos, clippings from newspapers and try to encourage people to contribute more to it. Something, um, a community-wide effort to collaborate and create their own living history of South Williamsport. So we've, we've been meeting and talking about working on that kind of project because publishing has changed. I actually did try to interest a couple of publishers with a short history of South Williamsport using some of Rosemary's notes, but they were more interested in me purchasing books. They said Sure, we're very interested, but you need to pre-order 300 copies of this book for us to even commit. And I said, hey, I'm a book writer. I'm not a bookseller.
1: Yeah, the last one I heard from wanted me to commit to a 1,000 of them. They, know, they, they, had, they had great stories, but um, you know, $10,000 is a lot of money <laughs> to, to get your book published.
0: Yes, and if you're going to pay to publish, I mean, you might as well do it yourself. Sure. You might as well you know go ahead and form a single-owner LLC and create your own imprint and that's what I did I created my own business it's called hands-on heritage and I'm working on a guidebook now based upon this project with South Williamsport and it's called my story is the story of the world and so um, that's one of the things that I'm interested in doing is taking that concept my story is and Introducing it to different communities and having them use the workbook, starting maybe with um, school children, using it in the curriculum, maybe even using it with um, retired teachers who are still interested in, you know, teaching and guiding and working and writing to um, collect stories from elders. But, you know, connect intergenerationally and create, like, my story is the story of South Williamsport. My story is Williamsport story. Those kind of concepts. So, But it's going to be more interactive and web-based. And if people want to print stories off of there, they can collect the kind of content they are interested in and form it into their own little book and then have it published for their um, bookcases.
1: That's that is such a cool idea that I'm surprised it isn't already out there somewhere. You know, this is you're talking like a template that any community, even in Arizona or something, exactly. Community, yeah. Yes, but you heard it first
0: here. Hands On Heritage has claimed this. We're trademarking. I already grabbed the domain, and I've got a pilot community. I'm doing this with. My concept was also to introduce this to different organizations. Um, For example, my story is the story of Little League. My st- and this is, this would, you know, be Little Leaguers or my story is the story of the Girl Scouts. My story is the story of the Boy Scouts or the church. You know, you can break it down into small communities or expand it into large communities. And it's a way to connect communities Um and so is
1: the is the one on South Williamsport is that up and running or are you no, guys still constructing it? We're
0: working on it right now. I'm okay. I'm actually I have <laughs> all of the information that Rosemary created in digital format, and I've like I said collected the domain name. Um, but Rosemary um, her information needs to be worked on a little bit before I can put it out there. But it will be the pilot program and. Um, the lovely thing about it is, then her story and her work and her research never dies, never goes away. It'll be available to every person at no cost. I mean, there is a cost, of course. Right now, I'm shouldering the cost of, um, you know, putting the project together and putting it on the internet. Eventually, I, I'm hoping to, you know, create a, a, you know, monetized model of this where the community shoulders the burden of. This project, so we'll see. we'll see how that goes.
1: Well, you know, you know, Robin, pe- people feel really strongly about their heritage and where they came from, especially someone who's older and maybe is missing their hometown, like I grew up outside Buffalo, New York, in a um, well, it's not a small town, but a town of about twenty five or thirty thousand called Grand Island the New York State it really goes right over it and I still feel very emotionally attached to that area, even though I haven't lived there for probably 35 years. And I think a lot of people feel that way about their their town and they their do. roots. So this this project could really take off, and uh, you'd have a lot of a lot of participation. I would think.
0: I'm hoping so. I I do, and one of the biggest reasons um, why I would like to see this project take off is because. I didn't have that kind of upbringing. Um, I've mentioned this before to um, people on this podcast, but um, my family was a little bit different. My mother was a single parent back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and she had five kids. Um, and before she became a single parent, she was married to a military person, you know, a Marine. And um, her lifestyle was to move from one post to the next so like every kid was born on a different side of the United States on military bases so she just you know there's something about the military even when you get out of that lifestyle that kind of um I don't know need to move doesn't leave people. So I went to 11 different schools when I was a little. And that's not counting colleges I've gone to, uh, you know, and I just didn't have a sense of community where I was raised. I didn't know the people. I barely even remember some of the places that I've lived at. So I yearn for that kind of community and so that's why i'm hoping that you know i can give that kind of uh sense of stability to other people and make them you think know
1: you, you appreciate think you found some of that here in williamsport that you didn't have when you were younger well you
0: know i've lived here now since 1996 it's been almost okay. 22 years and and you would think that i would be settled down and stable but mentally I'm already out of here.
1: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm already gone. This is the, I, probably the longest you've lived anywhere, huh, It
0: is. It uh-huh. is. I've only lived in two houses here, but I've lived in the same community. When our children were here, when they were um, embedded in the school system here and going through, you know, all of the different activities, like the Repaz Band, which you're a member of. Um, yeah. That's so great community resource. when they were here, we did feel very connected. But... um it it has nothing to do with where I am. It has everything to do with what's going on in the brain. Um, I have a, a personality type. It's an INTP personality type. It's a it's a rare kind of personality. That's a very um, introverted um, person, and I don't actually feel like I live in a physical space. My mind is always out there, projecting into something or somewhere. Uh, so. I hole up in my home office and I work on all these projects with people across the world. I mean, I communicate on a daily basis with people in so many different places that I, I really don't pay attention to where I am. So I don't get involved in the community. I well, kind of hide out. That's
1: kind of the nature of the world we live in now. But you know, it's funny. I was, I was just at, um, I went to a funeral last night for a, uh, a dear neighbor of mine and I probably knew one way or the other half the people there, even though most of them I had met before. I mean, there was some connection. So, you know, I'm fond of saying is you, you've heard the six degrees of separation. In Williamsport, there are two degrees of separation. <laughs> if, if you don't know the person, then you know someone who knows them. Yes. And I've never, I've never really lived in a town like this before. I grew up in Buffalo, which is very cosmopolitan. It doesn't sound that way, but it is. There's a lot of people in Buffalo. I went to school in Syracuse. I lived in. Uh, Manhattan and I lived in central New Jersey all of these places are teeming with millions and millions of people um, and uh, Williamsport is just much is much more tight-knit um, and uh, I was in Florida over the over Christmas break some friends of ours have retired down there to um, near Orlando and they were trying to persuade me to come down there when I retire and I thought I, I really don't think that I can leave central Pennsylvania I just have too many connections and there's just too much going on here and uh, that was kind of an eye-opener for me I mean I didn't realize that I had become such a uh, that I had been some become so connected in this area probably more so than any other place I've ever lived I think I have been here longer at this point in time but uh, it's a nice community it's just the right size. You know, there's plenty going on. There's, I'll tell you. There's a lot more going on here in this town than there was when I moved here in 1989. I moved here from Central New Jersey, having lived in Manhattan for three and a half years, and it was total cultural shock. You know, I felt like I had moved um, to the outback in Australia or something. Yes. But um, since then, in the 28 years since then, um, this you know thing, things have really grown around here. The music scene is hopping. The downtown scene is really on fire. Um, it's so great that we have a, a newspaper that's still very active a lot of um, towns in this country have lost their newspapers or the newspaper has gone down to three days a week uh, but the Williamsport Sun Gazette seems to be doing uh, quite well in fact for the first time in 20 years I finally got a raise Robin after all this time I, not that I was asking for it uh, don't tell them this but I would probably write for them for nothing if they didn't pay me um, but, um, so they must be doing fairly well advertising wise i hope Uh, so i hope we are they have a good they have a good sports department there and i think that i think that helps sell the paper because people in this town love sports they do as you know
0: they do when we first moved here um again we came from like we came from florida um the st pete tampa bay area millions of people like you and and like you we felt that um people were from the outback here i mean i didn't really think that I thought, oh my goodness, everybody's related to each other. They all look alike. There was a huge culture shock to us. And and I remember our car broke down when we first moved here. And we needed to get apart. And I took it over to this garage and they said, it's gonna be two weeks. I said, why? And they said, we gotta get apart from Harrisburg. And I know I'm giving you a um southern accent here. That he wasn't a southern accent, that's true. But you know the idea that it would take two weeks for them to get a part from a town that's eighty miles away. Was I said, put it back together. I'm picking it up and I'm going to go get my part myself. I was just, you know, adamant about this is insane. And so he, he went, okay, wait a minute, we'll we'll go ahead and go to Harrisburg and get the part ourselves. I said, okay, good, that 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 works. And it, and it became apparent that Williamsport has everything. They just had one of everything. You know, one Walmart. I've never heard anyone say (laughs) that before. When we first moved here, it was like one Walmart, one McDonald's, one Burger King, one Wendy's. I mean, there are quite a few more now, as you know, sheets. uh, We have a couple of sheets now, but in Florida, there was like a Walmart every five miles, you know, which I detest. I don't go to Walmart that often. But they did have everything. They had everything. And um, working at the newspaper was, one of the best things that happened to me simply because it allowed me to connect to people. I met so many people, you, but I met so many people and, and became connected in the community. And I, I really enjoyed that. And until 2001 when, um, I decided to become a freelancer. So at that point, I started closing myself up in my home office and saying no to people and kind of like avoiding going out and just working on my various projects. But it it worked because in the process, I was able to do, um, I made 10 history books um, and I wrote five novels and I've worked on hundreds and hundreds of websites i helped um create different kinds of publications like you know i helped um web weekly get off the ground which maybe i shouldn't say that out loud (laughs) you know as the first
1: editor well and the reason i I did not know that you were connected with web weekly that is a very popular
0: i I was their first editor um and the reason why i accepted it was because i wanted lou hunsinger to work as a journalist and and i had I had hired him at the um, Sun Gazette, but then when I left, um, he was let go eventually. And so at Web Weekly, I said, sure, I'll work for you, but you got to hire Lou, you know, because he's my buddy, and he's he's been a partner of mine working on several of these books.
1: And he knows um, half the people in this county. Oh, he does. Probably more than half.
0: <laughs> he does now. So he's been happily ensconced there. And then in 2009, Kathy Kolb invited me to... Um, help her start North Central PA, uh, which was an online newspaper, because, you know, we were watching what was happening with newspapers. Um, and I remember we went on this radio show once, and, and I did not know what she was going to say. But we were talking, and she made this statement. She said, uh, yeah, we're here for when the Williamsport Sun Gazette folds. And I went, no, 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 don't say that. Don't, don't say that. That's terrible. But it was too late. The Williamsport Sun heard that comment and associated me forever with their enemy the com. <laughs> so i don't
1: you know i don't see that there's a lot of competition between those two venues
0: no i see Rob more competition between them and very web weekly distinct,
1: uh, uh, province
0: it it is yeah. it is yeah. but yeah oh, web well. weekly is definitely their competition because they're fighting for yeah. advertising dollars there so yeah but it's a healthy community when you have all of these different forms of information out there, of forms of news, because that means that people want to people want to know they're interested in what's going on around them. Yep. So that's why I, yeah, think, I think my the, story is. The only thing
1: is, I see is that, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a high school English teacher and I, I generally work mostly with 11th graders. That's the case this year. I'm over at Loyal Sock and I've been there since 92 And uh, that age group just does not read the paper, except of course, the sports section. Now they do, and you know, and it's it's amazing. I think the Sun Gazette, if I'm recalling correctly, has eight sports writers. Wow. I don't know. I know if all the eight of them are on staff, but they do they do write for the paper, and they're very good writers, very attentive. And um, so my students will read those articles very very carefully, almost word for word. But um, any other news that they're going to get is probably going to come off the internet.
0: Exactly. So
1: uh, that's something that I think the Sun Gazette has been working on. They have that Monday education section, and uh, they sometimes have student writers. And of course, if a student writes for the paper, then their friends are going to pick it up and read it. And that's a big plus. And it's a plus too that the Sun Gazette has now gone to. Um, um, there's no longer a firewall on their website.
0: You
1: paywall, read right? Pay, paywall. Yeah, that, yes. that's what I meant to say. Um, so you can. So that's a big plus too, because my students will read something online. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm i happy to be working for them. And, um, well, I'm thrilled to be working for them.
0: I'm thrilled and, that they're uh, still able to hire writers and to give you raises. It's yeah. it's a wonderful institution. I would never want to lose the community newspaper. Newspapers, I find them fascinating. You know, I've, I've written several history books about the local newspapers. I mean, they're there recording everything.
1: Yeah, it's interesting too. A lot of times, when you see something, when you see a story break online, their source is oftentimes a newspaper. So the, news, the newspaper writers are still doing a lot of the investigating and breaking, and then um, the story is going online and getting taken that way. But um, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of good investigative talent, and um, Sun Gazette seems to be good at hiring young folk to be their editors and writers, so they can keep they can really keep their um, Keep their connection with um,
0: yes. Well, and I think
1: downtown culture
0: that started with um, the former editor in chief Dave Choisy. When when I worked there, he and I were talking about that, and and I told him, you need to consider this a, a springboard. What you're helping is develop young talent. So don't think that it's a bad thing to hire young people and train them, and the fact that they're moving on. Because you're, it,
1: you're, it keeps that twenty something age group interested in the paper, and that 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 age group generally doesn't read newspapers anymore. So that's it's very very important, and I think that's a that's a big part of the Sun Gazette's demographic that uh, maybe uh, differentiates it from some of the other small. Small town papers.
0: I do see that the newspapers of the future are going to struggle. I mean, I teach over at Lycoming College, um, and I'm the media writing instructor. And in the past, the classes that I taught focused on journalism. They evolved several years ago to almost eliminate the concept of journalism, and now we focus more on social media, um, web design, blogs. Um, do they
1: still have a newspaper? At like they do old? have they a did. newspaper.
0: They do have okay. a newspaper. but um, It's a weekly, am I right? It, like it is a weekly, um, and they have it online as well. But it's a struggle to get anybody to actually... Join the light courier and work and it's it's basically um, operates because it's a requirement it's a requirement for colloquium so students have to choose um, one of three different types of projects that they're going to focus on in communications Um, so it's either going to be digital it's going to be the radio or it's going to be the newspaper so but there will always be students who love to write it's just that the old form of journalism is, it's not apparent there anymore.
1: Yeah, yeah that's, that's following the culture, very much so.
0: Yes. So now you told me a little bit about your heritage as a writer, um, but I understand that you have two sons and that one of them is interested in writing.
1: Yeah, uh, I've got two. They're 28 and 25. Um, the older, uh, Douglas, works as a um I think his job title is traffic specialist for PennDOT in, um, in Pittsburgh, which might sound a little boring to a lot of people, but he really loves it, and uh, it's really interesting to talk with him about, you know, the problems that he solves are problems that we worry and complain about every day as drivers. So he's got a good job that he likes. The younger, Tim, um, and both of them came through my classes at Loyal Soc, which was a little bit awkward, having Dad were a teacher. Uh... Tim studied creative writing at um, a small Bellhaven University in Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, is now working on an MFA at the University of North Carolina in Wilmington, just went home uh, back to to school a couple of days ago. And um, he's a good writer. I read a lot of his stuff. He seems to be more committed to writing as a vocation than I was when I was his age. Um, uh, uh, the poet Rilke once said um, unless you feel I have to write or I'm going to die Rilke said unless you have that feeling you can't really consider yourself a writer now I have to tell you I don't have that feeling I have a lot of other stuff I love to write and I have a lot of other stuff going on in my life so I don't know how much of a vocation I have as a writer because I feel like if I couldn't write I could probably still get by (laughs) psychologically with a lot of the other things in my life. But Tim seems to have that real commitment to writing. And uh, he writes fiction. And uh, so he's, I I don't know if he's going to write or teach or both after he finishes that program. Um, But uh, he's down there working along on that. He just, uh, he's partway through his first year. I think it's a three-year program.
0: Wonderful. Well, he will be able to teach then if he's got an MFA. Yeah. Find himself a nice little college. Buckle down. Become the poet or the yep, creative I, writing instructor.
1: I, I sense that he has a gift for that. He did a, a, a quite a bit of um, working with uh, other writers was at Bellhaven. Well, now so, I guess, and so with, between my dad and me and my son, I guess I guess writing the writing gene seems to run in the family.
0: It has to. My mother was a writer, or she wanted to be. She had a typewriter in a little portable case that. Every time we would move, she would move it as well. And she was always saying that someday she wanted to be a travel writer and take that little um, typewriter with her on the road. So I basically travel writing. What a blast. Yeah. I've and done actually a fair amount of that. my daughter is a travel writer. She has um she has a pretty amazing career. My daughter um has A website called Frayed Passport. Um, Frayed Passport, like your passport's getting all beat up because you're on the road so much. And um, she has a lot of content on there, but she's um, been writing for a company called Volunteer Forever to the point where they've made her a partner in their company. And this program puts young people and older people, anybody actually, in the field on volunteer projects. So think Peace Corps without the government. And these projects, you've probably been on like mission trips, maybe. Um, different groups will go to different places. Like uh my friend Tanya went to Haiti. Um, she went to Joplin. Well, Sarah is basically um uh, going to a lot of these different programs in the field, and she is creating content there. She's collecting photographs, she has a GoPro video camera that does 360 video so that when you watch this video, you can basically, you know, mouse around, or if it's on an iPad, you can use your fingers and you can embed yourself within this video. And so she's going to take people virtually into all of these different programs. She's getting ready to start her first trip. And um, she's like, I'm not sure where I'm going. It might be Bali. It might be India, might be South Africa. And I'm going, oh, poor baby, poor baby. Right now she's in Portugal, Portugal. um, doing some work in Portugal. Uh, she spent the New Year in Paris. She just decided, I think I want to see the Eiffel Tower light show for the New Year. Wow, nice. Yeah, so Older she's she now, she's uh, 32, I think, 32. Okay. But you remember her. She really like yeah, she yeah. was on the Repaz band with you, and yeah. she was also in the TDQ band. She was quite the musician. Was she
1: clarinet or saxophone? Saxophone. Or saxophone.
0: But she <laughs> also did oboe, um, and okay. she could play around with the French horn a little bit, but oboe and saxophone.
1: Boy, if you're going to pick two instruments, oboe and French horn, are those are both really hard to play.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, um, she got wonderful education with the Repas and the TDQ, but she also was tutored by Al Nasinovic and um, <clears throat> there was another Dick Adams locally. They We gave her a lot of music lessons on the side and um, it paid off. She went to college and she got a scholarship, um, a music scholarship, and was the Conductor for the um, jazz band there, the the band for sporting events at George Washington University. So she did really well. She got a great education. Thank you, no, music. Dick,
1: Dick Adams is a legend around here. Yes, He's, uh, everybody knows who he is. My wife has even taken some lessons from him. She also plays the
0: Right, club. and Sarah used to so sit we're, next to him. We're back to,
1: to Williamsport being uh, one one or two degrees of connect. Uh, of exactly.
0: Separation. Exactly. Well, let me ask you something. As a teacher, as an instructor here in Williamsport and a writer, and you're very active in your church, do other people reach out to you for writing help?
1: Yes, almost too much. I mean, I, 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 that sounds complaining, but I just I wish, I, I wish there were three of me because so many people say, I've written a book, would you look at it? I had a student in my room. This, 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 will, uh, this will warm your heart, Robin. I had a student in my room on Thursday. Uh, she's 16. Uh, she want, She's working on a fantasy novel. She said it's 350 pages long, single space. You know, we're talking about, that's like 200,000 words or something. I've never written a book that long. And she said, well, this will be the first of, I think she said seven or nine books that she wants to write. And she said, I don't have a problem with writer's block. And I thought, I guess not. Um, but, you know, I would love to tell her I would, I should look at your book. You need someone to look it over for grammar and that sort of thing. Um, and people are constantly asking me that. And I, and I wish, because I'm good at it. I worked for Simon and Schuster as a, as a copy editor for five years. Um, and I was, I, I also worked at the copy editing, copy editing desk at uh, the Syracuse university newspaper, which is a five day a week newspaper. And that's this, it's a rare college that has a daily newspaper like that. So I would love to be able to do that. Uh, I just don't, I just don't have a lot of time. And oftentimes when someone says to me, here's a book I've written, would you look at it? It may be three or four months before I finally get to sit down and take a look through it. Uh, So I just, I wish that I had more time for that. But yes, lots of people ask me. And I also wish that I knew a little bit more about self-publishing because people are constantly asking me about that and I simply haven't. Haven't done it yet. There's a a friend of mine. um, I'll just tell you this brief story. Um, Brett Harrison who wrote for the Sun Gazette for a while, film reviews and he's from around here, his family's from around here he lives in Philadelphia now uh, and he just self-published at Amazon uh, and it's been interesting to watch his book See, it's been selling, it's been getting reviews he's been tweeting about it and I've been kind of keeping tabs on that to see what kind of uh, success he can have with that um, because that, that, that may wind up being the route that I go down uh, and fortunately for a student like this, like this young lady that I was talking to just the other day, if she can't find a publisher for her fan, her her 300 page fantasy novel, she can probably self publish. Certainly. And and there's a and I you know I said uh, well you must have read Christopher Paolini. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, but he wrote a very successful. Uh, I think it was called Aragon. Uh, and he was 16 at the time. Now that was picked up by a major publisher. That was a self-published book. Uh, but yes, lots of people ask me for, uh, for help and advice, and I do the best that I can with it. I wish I wish I had more time, and maybe when I retire, I might, I might like to start some sort of a you know creative writing group where we can sit around and read to each other. but I don't have time for that right now. I wish OK. But I got a lot of honors in the fire. Besides um, all the writing that I do and teaching, I play for the uh, the, the uh, Repass Band, which is a wonderful organization, oldest community band in the United States, going on two hundred years. Robin, right? Thirteen more years. Two hundred years old for that band in two thousand and thirty-one. I hope I'm still around.
0: We have a and, soft uh, spot I- for the band.
1: I do a regular uh, three times a year movie seminars at Agape Church, and I have a monthly book group that meets in the Danville, Northumberland area. So um, Well, it I'm sounds like busy. you're
0: contented, though. You have a very yeah. contented life. You're busy, yeah. you're putting out good work.
1: And there are things that I really like to do, so these are all it's, it's really great. And I'm not sure if I lived in a place like you know Philadelphia or New York City. I'm not sure there would be quite that many opportunities for a guy with my modest credentials. But um, here I'm I'm very happy and I'm I'm very glad that I live here. It's a, it's a nice place to live. It's a nice community and there's a lot of, a lot of connection.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Joe. I'm going to go ahead and let the podcast wrap up right now with your wonderful final words. But before I do, is there anything you would like to add? Anything that we may not have touched upon?
1: Um, I think I'll just wrap up by, by uh, quoting a favorite writer of mine, Larry McMurtry, who uh, he won the Academy Award years ago. I think he won it for his adaptation of Becker Mountain, the screenplay. Um, he, he said it's imperative that we not let the culture of the book die in this country. Um, and that's that I think is would be my final word here. Um, This country still needs readers. It needs people who read books, magazines, and newspapers and don't get all their information off Facebook and Twitter. And so that would be my final word to your listeners. Read. Read books, magazines, and newspapers. And read often. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Robin. Goodbye. Bye-bye.
0: I hope you enjoyed my interview with Joe Smith, and it inspires you to read more, whether it's books, magazines, or newspapers. In other words, close Facebook and Twitter. Put down the mobile phone and pick up a book. Embrace the book and read, read, read. You can find Joe's Books online at Amazon, and you can find me at RobinVanAuggen.com. While you're on my site, download my novel, West Wind. It's free. And speaking of free, I've got half a dozen other resources for writers and other creatives. So sign up today. Check out the episode and show notes at robinvanauken.com, session six. Thank you so much. And if you haven't done so, please hit that subscribe button on your device. Until next time, goodbye.